Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. We'll switch up the uh, order a little bit just to keep things fresh. And welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. As always, I'm your host, Corey DiBiase. Now, as a reminder, uh, in the last episode, we started looking at Wilder Penfield, Wilder Penfield's work in the neurosciences and the conclusions that he draws about the mind from his study of the brain. Now, Penfield's conclusion, which we, we haven't actually gotten all the way to his conclusion, but but I'm not going to keep you in suspense. I, I, I think it's easier if we kind of know where he's coming from and know where we're coming from as well. Penfield's conclusion is that the brain, the, the physical matter of the brain, ultimately cannot make the mind. That there has to be some other kind of stuff, and you know we've talked about this before. There has to be some other kind of stuff that kind of comes in and and intercedes uh, to make the whole thing work the way it it should. So that takes all the basic computer mechanical functionality of the brain, complex and intricate and beautiful as it may be, that takes all that and and gives it that that special something that brings it all together and makes it capable of producing a mind. And he grounds his conclusions, again, as we, we talked about, but I want to be clear about this. He grounds his conclusions in his interpretation of his study in the neurosciences and in his you know, actual work in neurosurgery. And I think we tend to hear that, you know, that we tend to hear this idea that, th you know, this guy is the father of modern neuroscience. You know, that's a uh, that's an impressive title. It might just be the title that I've given him, but I think it's a, it's a title that you could easily uh, defend ascribing to him. Um, so, but we hear that, uh, you know, we sort of amateur philosophy podcasters who are uh, talking about chairs and and early language users and tigers and shellfish we hear this father of modern neuroscience we hear neurosurgery we hear this hard science talk and and we get a little bit intimidated but but to, so of course he's right there in in the brain um how much can we say if, if he's that close to the to what we're claiming is is the root or at least the platform on all of this sort of naturalistic explanation of the mind that we've been talking about well he knows more about it than i do obviously he knows more about it i'm gonna assume than than most of us here today so what then what kind <laughs> of you know you ask then what right do we have to to question uh, the work that he's doing? But I think the key to remember um, uh, is that he is basing his conclusions about the mind that we will get to on his interpretation of his findings in neuroscience and neurosurgery, not on his direct work in neuroscience and neurosurgery. But we're, we're going to get to that a bit. It's, it's a fine line to toe, but I think it's, of course, very important. And when we get to this question of, of interpreting the data that he gives us, um, and then we do, we do need to be a little bit careful. Uh, of course, he has every right in the world to interpret his own work as he sees fit. And every, every work of science, every work of philosophy, every, every work period involves some degree of interpretation. There's no, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, you're not going to go out and find a scientific paper that says, here are, here's this list of pure facts, and we're not going to apply anything like interpretation to them. That, that, that's not practical. So I don't, I'm not being critical of what Penfield is doing here. I'm just saying it's that fact that he is interpreting this data that gives us a little bit of a foothold to start asking some questions about what that interpretation implies. 
Because the funny thing about interpretations, if I can get back to a perennial favorite theme of the show, we tend not to make them based on pure objectivity, but from the perspective of a larger narrative uh, of the understanding that we kind of already occupy. And, and all of that understanding, all this kind of story that in our mind, all the narrative in our minds, all call it what you will, the intellectual framework in our minds, that all sort of frames out our observations from the start. So if we have certain presumptions about the mind, we're bringing those presumptions to the table before we've done any work whatsoever. We're observing with those presumptions in place. We're certainly interpreting with those uh, those assumptions and that framework in place. Um, so, you know, you want to put that differently. If we go back a couple episodes and, and recall the idea of uh, this very simple summary that we gave of Frank Farrell's work, the idea that, that something like a story that was told about the mind in medieval Europe that that story was so pervasive and had so little competition at the time and was was sort of focused on exclusively over such a long period of time that the fundamental dynamic of that story about the mind that was told in the Middle Ages in Europe continues to shape not only the way we, and, and here I got to say, by we, I mean those of us who are inheritors of that intellectual tradition, uh, and of course, that's that's not everyone. It, it might be more folks than 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 would like it to be. But in any event, that is not everyone. But it it is certainly my perspective, and it's the perspective I I feel I can speak from to to some extent. But in any event, for those of us who are uh, inheritors of that intellectual tradition, this period in our intellectual history was so influential, uh, Farrell contends, and I certainly do as well, that it continues to shape not only the way we tell the story of mind but the way the mind has come to be fundamentally structured based on that story. So this story, if we go back to our software analogy, this story was, was, had a very fundamental impact on, on not just what the, all the memory, not, all, not just the information that fills up the mind, but it has an influence on the operating system of the mind itself. And I will further argue that Penfield himself is so rooted in that tradition and all the various assumptions that our, our famous medieval monks uh, that, um, that they brought to the table and this, this extremely influential theory that that that's continues to be passed down to us to, to, to this day, um, that effectively he's only able to understand the evidence he sees based on those presumptions of the story that's come down to him and that sort of makes his conclusions inevitable right from the start. But I'm getting a little bit too far into the details. I, I don't want to start kind of casting aspersions on his entire method before we've gotten a little bit further into the mechanics of it so you can you know, hopefully see what I'm talking about as I am talking about it. In any event, if you've been tuning in for the last few episodes, I hope some of this makes a little bit of sense. If not, you know, hopefully no worries. We're going to proceed and hopefully get some clarity going as we move forward here. And I do try not to let my sort of detail, control freak nature come out too much in this forum, but... Um, 
if it were up to me, uh, you know, and this is this is where the the control freak comes in. If it were up to me, there'd be some kind of law where you simply had to listen to all of these episodes in order, starting with the very first one and going forward. Um, and and maybe you know at different at various points you'd have to take some kind of you know a test or something, you know, write an essay in number two pencil in a little blue book. But of course, that is not the case. And, and I think probably I, I could be talked into the idea that that should not be the case. Uh, but, you know, we'll set that to the side for the moment. Um, all that said, I, I think it would at least be helpful. I, I hope that you'll have had a chance to have listened to last week's episode, which really sets the stage for all of our talk about Penfield. Um, but of course, you know, this is a, a podcast about freedom, so uh, far be it from me. If you want to just dive right in, uh, of course, you carry on exactly as you see fit. In any event, to summarize where we are, Penfield has been charting the mind and or the brain, and he does make a distinction between those two things that we'll get into. He's been charting the mind and the brain uh, along a pretty specific division. On the one hand, there's this very mechanical, purely functional aspect um, that he calls the province of the brain. And this is, this is, I mean, this is like muscles, this is like the heart, this is like the bloodstream. These are mechanical functions of the body, um, albeit, and he will certainly admit, fantastically more intricate than the workings of a muscle group or of the lungs or the heart. Nonetheless, that's what they are. They're biological computers. They're, it's a biological machine. Um, and it, uh, it in includes, by the way, thing, things like language. Lang our capacity to speak language falls into that mechanical aspect of the brain. So this is not just the simplest kind of, oh, how do we move my arm or how do I recall this simple memory? Very intricate things are at work here. Pl people playing the piano based wholly on the purely, what Penfield would call, the purely mechanical aspects of the brain. By contrast, you have this, this other thing which Penfield calls the brain's machinery for the mind. Um, and that's where we get into uh, sort of executive choice-making capacity. That's where real consciousness comes in. That's where, uh, to use a, a phrase that we probably overuse a bit, but it's, it's sort of a favorite of philosophers, the meanness of me, the, the, the essence of who and what I am. That's, that is introduced in the brain or, or, or is created in the brain uh, and thus in the mind by this, uh, the brain's machinery for the mind, which again is distinct from all the other somewhat quote-unquote simpler machinery. So to illustrate all this, to give some tangible examples of this divide, there are two types of scenarios that Penfield has laid out fundamentally in the experiments and the work that he's done. First, when the specific functions of the brain, meaning the mechanical, purely functional brain, when one or more of those specific functions is shut down, um, what we see, what Penfield sees, is, is the mind trying to find a way to circumvent whatever has malfunctioned. So, for example, we saw uh, a, a patient who's, uh, who had his language center kind of activated, or excuse me, had it, had it interfered with by having an electrode applied to it such that he, could not, he couldn't get words anymore. He couldn't use words, couldn't use language. The language center was shut down. Nothing else really was. And Penfield, it, it, justifiably, he's you know the, this is what the patient is telling him. Um, so far as this come down to us, Penfield sort of paints this picture of the patient's 
using his ment his executive mind function to try and find a way around this this malfunction in the system so if the brakes on the car go out well you look for the handbrake or you downshift you find some way to to circumvent it he, penfield's trying to paint the exact same picture here um of that for that person whose language center was blocked um the mind, again, in these instances, it remains intact. You can interfere with language, but the mind itself remains intact, even if it's sort of frustrated by the, this lack of functionality at the controls. Um, uh, so our patient with his language function being interfered with, he doesn't somehow stop being a person. And to use the example that Penfield uses, he doesn't stop knowing what a butterfly is in a very real way. He just he just he just can't get to what that specific word is. He can't any longer find the word that associates with that idea that in Penfield's telling remains perfectly intact. Now, alternately, you have these instances where the mind itself or the brain's machinery for the mind, whatever you want to call it, that executive piece, the mind itself is shut down, but everything else continues to operate at least for a period of time and it does so on what we would call a kind of a limited autopilot um one that keeps it, this kind of autopilot that keeps the system going for two or three moves into the future so long as those moves require no kind of uh, of executive intervention so if i'm walking particularly if i'm walking on a very well-known track if i know exactly where i'm going i'm walking home from work I might well be able to continue that same walk that I take every every day, unless there's suddenly a detour that I wasn't anticipating, um, or if I'm you know if I'm somewhere where I don't know the territory at all. That's of course a very different thing. Uh, Penfield even gives the example uh, of someone playing a piano and playing it very well, you know, very intricate piece. The patient in question continues to play that piece after. Well, to, just to back up a little bit, after having had what's oh, called a petite mal seizure, which in Penfield's view, that kind of short circuits the, the actual mind piece of this functioning for a short period of time, the, such that the patient is now purely functional. It's all mechanics. Well, one of the mechanical things that that, that mind can continue to do is play the piano. It just can't decide to... Uh, stop playing one piece and start playing another or start interpreting the piece in a very different way than, than, than the person had before. Um, so anything that's, that's quote unquote muscle memory, but you see how intricate some of those functions are that Penfield is perfectly willing to ascribe to the purely functional part of the brain. So after all of this, we come to the point of Penfield's answering his own question from a while back. And, and let me restate that question to you thusly. Quote, Is there any evidence of the existence of neuronal activity within the brain that would account for what the mind does? Unquote. So now, in the episode, the, the the earlier episode, one of the first episodes in which I referenced Penfield previously, I, I think I talked about an experiment, a single experiment that he did to, that quote unquote, proved the existence of the soul. Now that statement was imprecise for, for two reasons. The first is that Penfield does not use the word soul per se. 
he says mind, but the way he ends up using that word mind and the implications he draws from it, if we take it out of the religious context of soul, we find that that mind and soul are actually functionally pretty similar things uh, in terms of the way Penfield is using this term mind. Now, the second thing that makes my original statement, this experiment that proves the, the existence of the soul or mind, second thing that makes that imprecise is that it's more than just sort of one experiment that he did. It's all of this testing, all of this exploration, all this work that he was doing with patients, everything we've related thus far, everything we talked about in the last episode, and a lot more besides, all of that is the foundation of experimentation and observation that he uses to, uh, to as, the as the, again, the foundation of his ultimate conclusions. So just making that clear so that, uh, so that uh, my previously glib statement is a little more clear now. So to begin his, to answer his own question, Penfield first defines what he regards as the functions of mind. He keeps saying, so can the brain explain the mind? Well, let's at least define what mind is, define what it does. So he does so thusly, quote, it is what we have learned to call the mind that seems to focus attention. The mind is aware of what is going on. The mind reasons and makes new decisions. It understands. It acts as though endowed with an energy of its own. It can make decisions and put them into effect by calling upon various brain mechanisms. It does this by activating neuronal mechanisms. This, it seems, could only be brought about by an expenditure of energy. Unquote. Penfield talks now a bit about what exactly his work with an electrode can accomplish. So this has all been, everything we've been doing so far, everything Penfield's been doing, is, is a matter of essentially applying a live electrode to the exposed brain of a patient. So, so exactly what is he doing when he does that? He goes into a little bit of detail to explain it. And we'll remember that it, by applying an electrode to the exposed brain, um, it, it, it that might reproduce sensations. It might recall chunks of memory, sometimes memories in, in just fantastic detail. Um, it might cause a patient to move, physically move. Uh, it might cause a patient to vocalize, might cause a patient to swallow. But at no point, and Penfield points this out very explicitly, at no point does the application of an electrode cause the patient to feel that they have decided to do any of these things that they've done as a consequence of that electrode being applied. So all of these, um, these actions produced by the application of an electrode, they seem like, to the patient, they seem like they're coming from somewhere else. So let me hear, let me, uh, let's hear Penfield on, on the specific idea. Quote, when I've caused a conscious patient to move his hand by applying an electrode to the motor cortex of one hemisphere, I've often asked him about it. Invariably, his response was, I didn't do that. You did that. When I caused him to vocalize, he said, I didn't make that sound. You pulled it out of me. And when I caused the record of the stream of consciousness to run again and, and so presented him with the record of his past experiences, he marveled that he should be conscious of the past as well as of the present simultaneously. He was astonished that it should come back to him so completely with more detail than he could possibly recall voluntarily. He assumed at once that somehow 
the surgeon was responsible for this phenomenon, but he recognized the details as those of his own past experience. When one analyzes such a, quote, flashback, it is evident, as I have said above, that only those things to which he paid attention were preserved in this permanently facilitated record, unquote. Now, as a complete aside, I would like to propose that some ambitious dual major graduate student uh, in you know neuroscience and literature, neuroscience and language, um, and presumably you know someone at McGill, a student at McGill, I, they they would eat this stuff up at McGill. So if I have anyone listening in McGill, this is just take this idea and run with it. I think it'd be great. Send me a draft. I'd love to read it. Some graduate students should do an in-depth analysis on the importance of pronouns in the work of Wilder Penfield. Because here we are again. Patient tells us, quote, I did not move my arm. You, you, the guy with the electrode, you moved my arm. In the same way that if you and I were driving a car together and, and I reached over and I honked the horn, you wouldn't later tell the story and somehow assume that because it's your car and because you're driving that, that well, really, you had honked the horn, right? You're the, who, who honks horns? Drivers honk horns. So ignore the fact that Corey reached over and honked the horn for you. Um, it, it only just fits in with the identity that it must have been you honking the horn. And Penfield wants us to see a very similar kind of mechanism at work here. The mind, per se... It's a kind of an executive me, up, over, and above all of this extremely complex neuronal machinery of the brain. But but again, it's it's very complex, but it's still just hyper-complex machinery. When the system works the way it should, I, the me, the mind, the executive me, I manipulate the system exactly the way I manipulate a car. Uh, but then you get all this business with these electrodes. Um, the fact that electrical stimulation can create a sensation or a complex memory or cause me to speak or, or, or keep me from speaking. All of that actually points to the fact that it's possible to hijack the system under certain circumstances and to take elements of the functioning away from, quote unquote, me, the me that normally controls it all. So Penfield with his electrode, and, and this is Penfield's interpretation, but uh, you know, it's very important. Penfield with his electrode is like me in the passenger seat of your car. I, I, I can honk the horn. You know, heck, I, maybe I can even take the wheel. I mean, I, I can probably wreak complete havoc in this driver-to-car mechanism and the way it's supposed to, to, to normally work. But of course, I, I cannot, from the passenger seat... I can't completely take over all of the normal functioning involved in what we call driving. And I can also not do anything that will cause you, the driver, to identify yourself as the author of my random actions. Again, if I honk the horn, you don't somehow get tricked into thinking that you honk the horn just because, hey, it's your car, you're driving, who else could have done it? How, you know, what, it must be me since the, the horn is suddenly honking. But, okay, I, I'm kind of getting into the point of trying to summarize Penfield's thesis, and rather than do that, uh, let's hear it from the man himself. 
Now, as we get into this, uh, this quote, we may wish to recall the discussion we had way back, uh, not that far back, but you know, it, it, it seems like a little while ago, about this religious perspective and how it allows us to bring two very different kinds of stuff, quote unquote stuff, to bear in, ex in explaining the human mind. This is what we, we set up as being fundamentally opposed to my preference, which is a naturalistic explanation wherein you only get one kind of stuff. So just, just be bearing that in mind for a second here, as, as I think we've already started to reference. Quote, Let us consider what light our positive neurophysiological evidence can throw on the nature of man's being. If there's only one fundamental element in man's being, the neuronal action within the brain must therefore account for all that the mind does. For my own part, after years of trying to of striving to explain the mind on the basis of brain action alone, I have come to the conclusion that it is simpler and far easier to be logical if one adopts the hypothesis that our being does consist of two fundamental elements, because it seems to me certain that it will always be quite impossible to explain the mind on the basis of neuronal activity within the brain, and because it seems to me that the mind develops and matures independently throughout an individual's life as though it were a continuing element, and because the computer, which the brain is, must be programmed and operated by an agency capable of independent understanding. Because of that, I am forced to choose the proposition that our being is to be explained on the basis of two fundamental elements. Unquote. And there we have it. And let me emphasize again, the most important figure in the history of neuroscience to date the man who changed our entire approach to understanding the brain and whose work demonstrated, at least in part, but, but certainly, to, I mean, to an extent that had never previously been true, his work demonstrated that the biological human computer, it demonstrated what that biological human computer was capable of. That man ultimately concludes that the brain alone will not suffice to explain the mind. You know, so as I as I noted, I don't agree with Penfield's assessment here, and 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 I will tell you why. I've, I've started to hint at it, but but I, let let me let's dive into his work and and then and dig out a couple reasons here. Um, and by the way, if you're wondering if if you know to sort of go about the task of criticizing the father of modern neuroscience, as I'm as I'm basically proposing to do, so to accomplish that, will I be referencing my own? decades of groundbreaking neurosurgical experimentation and research, you know, and, and I'm, I mean, clearly here, I, you know, obviously could, if it's, I mean, if, if I wanted to, you know, obviously if I wanted to, cause yeah, I mean like neurosurgery, neuroscience and stuff, I, I was just before I, I started this podcast here, I was doing some neuroscience and it's, it's, it's not that big, a, it's not that big a deal. It's no thing. It's not a big thing for me. Just, you know, you do some neuroscience sometimes. You, 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 you break some ground. You get some revolutionary thing. Not that big a deal. The difference is, 
I think you'll agree, that some people just like to go on about it all day, make a big, big deal. Me, you know, I, I, I try to, I'm more of a just humble podcaster. I, I just get through life talking about tigers and shellfish and pancakes and stuff like that. I, I don't try and, you know, make a big deal about all my, my groundbreaking neuroscience. But anyway, let's, let's, let's really put that to the side uh, uh, to begin with here. So in any event, what I believe is wrong with Penfield's argument and I, I just, I can't, I, I, I got to interject one more time here that I'm, I'm largely parroting and paraphrasing the thinking of Daniel Dennett in all of this. He really, he set up the framework for all of this kind of thinking about why this, why this scenario that Penfield sets up here uh, and that many, many, many other neuroscientists and philosophers all follow why that fundamentally doesn't work. Um, to say what's off in Penfield's argument, uh, to me, let's let's go back all the way to the beginning of, of this story that I recounted to you in the way that uh, Penfield goes about his work. One of the very first distinctions that Penfield made in his classification of brain functions, he drew a line, right, but between the automatic mechanisms of the brain on the one hand and the brain's machinery for the mind on the other. And, I, and I, the more times I say it, I wish he'd have gotten that word machinery out of there because um, it does make it a little hard to distinguish. But, but you get the fundamental point here. We have mechanics on one side, pure functionality on one side, and we have that je ne sais quoi. We have the, the special spark of the mind on the other side. Now, I believe that by making that division, Penfield is making a two-part mistake. Now, first, it seems to me, every time he clearly understands some piece of the brain, it gets labeled as, quote unquote, mechanical. It, it becomes part of the computer. And as a consequence of that, he essentially sets it to one side. He puts it in the, quote unquote, automatic mechanisms of the brain, the functional computer side, not the mind side, which means that as he's going through this work, piece after piece after piece of the brain's functioning essentially gets disqualified from being part of our real explanation for how the mind comes to be. So as a consequence, not only do we need to explain the mind, now we need to do so without even being able to call upon phenomena like memory and speech and movement and, and the ability to play the piano and even in just a, a mechanical kind of rote, faction, uh, uh, rote fashion. And all these different factors that Penfield ends up setting to one side in no small part. He sets them aside. He calls them not part of his explanation of mind really because, because he comes to understand them fairly well. Now, and this points to what we might call the paradox of explaining the mind, you know, including, as always, the, our capacity to make free choices, our consciousness, our, our overall concepts of selfhood, and on and on and on, as we've said a bunch of times. We have built so much expectation and so much mystery into the way we regard these phenomena, and to stay on brand, I would say that we've done so in no small part because of how we've talked about these phenomena century after century, so we've poured the, all this expectation of magical mystery into what we hope to see in any explanation of the mind while also cultivating the expectation that our mind is always all the way in the back at the furthest recesses of ourselves. And, and 
remember our medieval exercise of, of retreating as deeply as possible into ourselves and in order to be truly ourselves. That So we get to this point now that anything we can understand becomes disqualified from our explanation, of at least of mind. So we might say that instead of looking to solve a mystery, Penfield is looking for a mystery. Something sufficiently mysterious to be the source of this nearly magical phenomenon that is the mind. So think of it this way, to use a kind of silly analogy. I want you to show me the part of a car that makes it be able to drive. And now I, I, I don't mean, and this is where this gets to be not the best analogy, so I apologize for that. I don't mean the part of the car that, that helps it, that tells it, that makes it decide where to go. Obviously, that is the person driving it. And that immediately puts us into the dynamic that, that Penfield uh, is arguing is, is exactly the way the mind works, that you have a fundamentally other substance coming in, i.e. the person, the different substance comes into the car and suddenly it has executive function. I'm not talking about that, which, but just recognize how it does make the analogy a little suspect. Um, I, I just want to know what makes it so that a car goes out on the road and, and drives around. Show me that part of the car. What is it that does that? Well, you know, maybe the first thing you point to is, is the engine. A and fine, sure, I get that the engine is important, but, but all that does is really, you know, makes it so the wheels can turn. And by the way, I should say, I've seen engines, working engines, functioning engines outside of cars, and they don't drive at all. They make a lot of noise, but really they just kind of hang there, sounding angry. So I want to know what makes the car be able to drive. And of course, you can go through piece by piece, each piece of the car, and I can tell you in response to that each time. Why I get that, of course that piece is important, of course the tires are important, of course the, this is important, of course that is important, but it doesn't answer my my broad, somewhat vague question of how is it that the car is able to drive? Now, in that silly analogy, perhaps you see the problem with this in, that this entire way of thinking creates. We've created an explanatory bar that is both very high, but fundamentally quite vague. So, we're not, again, we're not looking to solve a mystery. We're looking to find something sufficiently mysterious to match what our vanity tells us must be the source of that good old magical me, the special meanness of me and, and, and the innermost point of my consciousness. So if I'm going through a list of all my car parts and crossing them off as possible answers to my question, well, pretty soon there's not going to be anything left in my explanatory toolbox to understand how a car operates in the in the first place. You know, to put differently, every time we understand a piece of the puzzle, every time we understand what it does, the, the simple fact that we understand it makes it too mundane to possibly be part of our explanation for the mind, which means, of course, that I can't use anything that I actually understand. You know, so if, if I can't use anything that I actually understand, of course, I'm going to be left with no choice but to call upon some mysterious external force. Uh, to so, if we use it with the the, the, the car analogy, I've got you know it can't be tires, it can't be the engine, it can't be can't be the axle, it can't be any of these things. So, well, I, I guess then it's it's got to be what the the spirit of the highway or Phantom three hundred nine or you know whatever else you want to call it. Um, but I, I'm going to need something like that, something else brought in from the outside to explain how the car operates because I've essentially taken everything else that's actually in the car out of contention. 
Um, and there's another analogy. I, I think this is Gilbert Ryle. He goes through this whole thing about, you know, the someone comes and asks him, I, I need you to show me the university. So Gilbert Ryle takes him and says, oh, right, here, here's the center of the universe. This is the, the, this is the, the main hall of the universe. Well, no, I didn't ask about the main hall. I want the university. So they go to the student center and they go to the, the dining hall and they go to the dormitories and the classrooms. And of course, time and time and time and time again, the, 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 the person says, no, you're not answering my question. I want to see the university. All you're doing is showing me these silly, these silly pieces. So it's, a, it's fundamentally a, a kind of forest for the trees uh, analogy of a mistake that we make in terms of what we're expecting from these kinds of explanation. But silly analogies aside, what does this remind us of? This process of crossing off pieces of the brain's function in order to get at what the real mind is, quote-unquote, the real mind. And, and I think probably you get a cue. Every time I start talking about quote-unquote, you probably know the direction I'm going in, right? But, but you know, bear with me here. To me, here again, this, of course, this is our medieval monks all over again. Now, the motivations are very different here, of course, right? The, our, our monks, they wanted to flee from all things external, all things bodily and physical and, uh, and potentially sinful, and they wanted to retreat back into the recesses of the pure soul so as to be as close to God and as close to our true selves, untainted by sin, as close to our true selves as we could possibly be. Penfield's impulse... Um, like I say, and, and I gotta say, I'm being extremely glib here. I don't know that Penfield would agree with the way I'm characterizing this at all, but I really do believe it's, it's a justifiable characterization based on what we're reading here. Penfield's doing a, a much more modern, uh, version, but he's still accomplishing fundamentally the same thing. Um, he's retreating from what is understandable, uh, because we believe the mind must be a mystery, as I say. So if you want to find the part of me that makes quote-unquote real choices, well, okay, fine. Got to retreat backward from just the language center. All that does is make language. And we can see a brain trying, or we can, a mind rather, trying to operate and making real choices in the absence of the language center. We saw it with the person trying to get at that, that word butterfly. So it can't be that. So and then, of course, retreat backward from simple body control, simple senses. Retreat backward from your memories because, you know, those aren't you. Your memories are not you. They're, they're just some kind of stuff that the real you picked up along the way. So go back, go back, go back, go back past anything that is just mechanical and understandable. Go pack, back past anything just mechanical and only there. Will you find the real you? Oh, and, you know, of course, by the way, now that you've found the real you, uh, you've gone back, 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 back into the recesses of, of your selfhood and you found the real you, uh, not, the, not the language part, not the memory part, not the motion part, not, not the breathing part, none of that stupid stuff that's, that's obviously not you, the real you that's, that's, abs that's, that's sh shorn all of those silly details. Well, since, it was, since, of course, we've decided that every identifiable function of the brain that we've actually come to the point of understanding, since all of that is not part of the real me, uh, well, obviously then it can't be part of an explanation of the mind. So now we essentially have nothing left in our explanatory toolkit, so 
Funnily enough, we're, we're actually going to need to get a totally different substance in here so that we, uh, and you know, it, maybe it's a substance that we can't see. Maybe it's a substance we can't measure. Maybe it's a substance we can't imagine. Maybe it's a substance that really we don't, we don't know what it does in any fundamental way. Um, but, you know, all that aside, we, we need that because look, we, we've, we've got nothing else. The cupboard is bare. We've, we've thrown away all the food and, and now we're hungry. So we need to get this explanation. I, one more silly analogy. I, I think of the, the sort of, uh, the, the prima donna in her dressing room. Um, and I should say his or her dressing room, because having spent some time in the theater, I, I don't think prima donna is a, is in any way a sex specific identification. Um, but the, the, the very vain actor in their, in their dressing room, and they've gone through this entire rack of clothing. Oh, this is terrible. This, costume will never work for this and throwing them they're throwing them one after the other all these costumes getting thrown on the floor and then when all all of it is done they get even angrier because look you know you do not even giving i'm supposed to go on stage in 15 minutes and you've not even given me a costume to wear I, so that's the kind of cyclical irrationality that i think is fundamentally at work here so what was the question i asked a, a few episodes back what if i'd been born as a totally different person in a totally different place with totally different circumstances, totally different, totally different everything, totally different language, the whole thing. What if only that central perceiving spark that is me, the most recessed part of me, quote unquote, had been taken out of what I think I am now and dropped into someone else's life and body and language and memory and entire, you know, it, every, it dropped into the details of someone else's existence entirely. Well, now we kind of agree that that doesn't make a lot of rigorous sense, but you know, if I'm reading Penfield correctly here, if we follow what he's thinking, Penfield would have to agree that, you know, at least a theoretical possibility that, 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 that kind of question could be sensible, that it has to make some kind of rigorous sense because that's fundamentally what he's telling us that back behind every detail, there is some function of real me, the actual thing that's back there that, uh, that makes a, that is perfectly sensible, absent all of these other details. But for all of that, what I'm arguing, as I said above, I'm arguing fundamentally that Penfield's narrative, for all that that it's based on the hard sciences, for all that he's he's using very hard science and presumably mostly valid science. Of course, there have been innovations of plenty in neuroscience, but fundamentally, we can say he, he's doing rigorous hard scientific work. But the interpretation of that work that he's giving us, his narrative that he creates. Well, that echo, that that narrative echoes the same narrative from the Middle Ages that we heard from from our monks, sort of uh, looking for that endlessly mysterious and inwardly recessed notion of selfhood and of the mind. And it's that narrative. It is the the the, the expectations of that narrative, the structure of that narrative, the way that narrative not only structures how we describe the mind but structures the mind itself for all intents and purposes, it's that narrative that's going to make it so that no new innovation in our understanding of the brain will possibly be enough for certain thinkers to believe that what's happening in that brain function could possibly account for the mind 
i.e. who and what we are, how we make choices, consciousness, freedom, the, the, our famous meanness of me, the special, unique, magical, unprecedented, and blah, 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 blah. Need I say the somewhat vanity-infused phenomena of the fact that I am me and I do and think and say and choose all these things I do and think and choose and say. And don't kid yourself. Um, uh, this is not just about me. This, of course, is that this is about the fact that you are you and that everybody's everybody. The way that narrative is structured is going to keep even a, a, a neuroscientist, a, a hard scientist of Wilder Penfield's caliber, it's going to keep him from ever feeling that this problem is solvable with the tools that he has at hand. And this, to me, points to, to a final mistake that Penfield makes and, and that, I, I, that I think we all make when we start correlating neuroscience with the working of the mind. And, and, and yes, of course, neuroscience is fascinating. Neuroscience is important. And it's going to continue to reveal very important facts about how we operate, what we are, what we do, and it's going to continue to feed into philosophy. For philosophers like Daniel Dennett, it's going to continue to give them more and more and more insight that's going to help us as these ideas are merging together. It's going to help us better understand ourselves. Uh, but we do have to remember, like we said at the very start of the show, we can be naturalists and still contend that the brain is fundamentally just hardware. And to use an analogy that comes with some, you know, Turing-esque implications, people are not just hardware. We, of course, are also software. So, you know, remember, our, our, our memes, our language, all that good and often obscuring stuff that we've been talking about over the course of episode after episode after episode, which, again, it, it doesn't mean that understanding the brain is sort of pointless, like, oh, just neuroscience is never going to help us understand anything about the mind. Well, no, of course it's going to help us understand things. It just can't do so completely in the abstract, completely drawn away from the actual nature of how we exist in the world. So to, to summarize, as we move this toward a close here, it's the fact of this narrative and the way it has influenced Penfield that I would argue puts us right back where we, we, we've been and where the, this kind of crossroads we keep finding ourselves at over these last few shows that we've been doing. And, and I, I believe I've made my point about why I don't buy this, this, this notion of this, this deeply inward self. Um, but I, I've shared this work, this, this uh, Penfield's work and a, a sort of recounting of his work for a couple reasons. First of all, I, I did want to give you another argument uh, that is somewhat more contemporary, and which, by the way, is still very much, uh, many, many thinkers are still using this kind of argumentation today. They, many people would say that, you know, no, you know, podcaster on your whatever seventh, eighth episode, no, you do not have the, the, the qualifications to criticize a scientist and a thinker of the, of the caliber of Wilder Penfield just yet. So slow your roll and uh, let's, let's take his, his work at face value. And so his is, his is a representation of a very real uh, piece of the of the debate that continues to go on. And I wanted to give it its due because obviously, you know, Wilder Penfield deserves to have his due. And I think we can look at all these different things that he's told us about, and we can continue to look at all this new neuroscientific evidence and learn a lot from it. We just need to be careful about 
what these narratives, the structure of the software of mind, the way it's been structured by all this time, all this thinking, um, what that has ended up doing, sort of tilting our own perspective on these different things. But more to the point, if you're with me on this, you know, more or less, if you more or less agree with the kind of perspective that I'm giving on this, the, the conception of mind that I'm peddling here, of course, I, I wanted to really show you in what I consider pretty tangible terms, how deeply ingrained and influential this perspective is, this, this narrative from the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, arguably from even before that with uh, thinkers like Plato and others like him, um, how influential that narrative is and how it is influential in a way that we just can't really keep track of. It is our, you know, it's rooted into our most fundamental assumptions about ourselves. It's rooted into the structure, the structure of what our mind, the software of our mind has become. And so lo and behold, when we send that structured mind out into the world, seeking for answers to these questions, well, it's going to look for answers that fit into the structure that's already established. The operating system, as it were, predisposes it to fit very well with, with new ideas, new programs, new memes that operate on fundamentally these same assumptions. And all that's going to happen in the deep down in the programming language. It's not anything that I, as the end user, the end user of my own mind, it's not anything that I'm going to see. It's just all operating there beneath the veil deep down in the programming. Um, so again, this idea that the real mind, sort of back behind the workings of the brain, providing us with our real consciousness, our real selves, and of course our, our real ability to make choices, our real free will, in essence, I'd argue that the conception of mind that we've cultivated in our long history of talking about minds and talking about souls and talking about choice and, and consciousness and all the rest, that conception of mind and the shape of mind that it creates is so pervasive as to influence even a neuroscientist at work as he's going about fashioning a theory for how the brain can or cannot make a mind. So, next time, at long last, we're going to take all these various pieces that we've been talking about over the last few episodes that we've really been positioning as challenges primarily. We're going to take all those different pieces and we're going to try and flip the script. We're going to try and use those challenges and what they tell us to create something like a positive, viable explanation for how all of this works. Now, as you've likely noticed in all of our discussions so far, it's whenever a philosopher or even a podcaster fan of philosophy to to crib a phrase, if you if you don't mind, um, it's whenever we go from observing challenges to suggesting solutions that things do tend to go astray. But hey, you know what? Might as well throw our hats in the ring, see how that works out, see what happens. So, as always, thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you soon. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>